0: Hold on to your butts. You stood on the shoulders of geniuses uh, to accomplish something as fast as you could. And before you even knew what you had, you, you patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox. And now you're selling it. You want to sell it. Well, Welcome to the infinite World Podcast.
1: Hey, welcome everyone to another episode of the Infinite Worlds podcast. I am your host, Winston Ward, founder and editor of Infinite Worlds and Infinite Horrors magazine. And I am joined, as always, by my wonderful co-host, Nick the Tooth. What's up, Nick?
0: What's going on, brother? How you doing, man?
1: You know, some magazine-related problems and stuff, but let's get into you first. You are back in uh england again right
0: yeah i'm in london once again um thoroughly enjoying it hanging out with my uh, my daughter and uh it feels so good to be back because as you know i was in like the rural south of, of uh of right. florida and although the beaches were beautiful it was still the rural <laughs> south. In fact, how hard was it for even for me to get a, a good Wi Fi signal? It was insane.
1: Y'all, you guys don't know. We kept trying to record episodes over and over and over again, and we'd be like ten or fifteen minutes into recording an episode, and then Wi Fi on Nick's end would just drop because a storm would pass over, and he was having to use five G or four G.
0: It was a challenge. It was a nightmare. You're you're damn <laughs> playing it. It was a nightmare. <laughs>
1: we did it did suck. We'd have to reschedule over oh. and over and over again. And then the, when we finally did get to record the episode while you were there, which I think was the 1984 episode, we started again and your, the Wi-Fi still wasn't working. So you had to like leave your place and go to your friend's place to record.
0: Dude, it was uh, so gnarly. So it's good to be back. You know, it's rad to be back in an area that's like so up to date to be in London. and But I don't mean just for the signal. I mean, just for my state of mind where sure. it's like, oh, sure. it's just so cool to be here. It's really cool i'm really stoked how's your um, how's your neck my neck's good man my neck's good i'm so ecstatic to be a cyborg now that mm-hmm. uh <laughs> i'm really are you are you
1: experiencing any like uh lingering effects or you got free range of motion and everything
0: now you know i'm at 13 it's really interesting you ask that i'm at like 13 14 weeks since the surgery and i've had started to become a little bit sore lately but the reason is, is because I figured it out today. I've been writing with like, I'm back to writing on my stomach, which is putting a lot of strain on the back of my neck, which they call the facet joints in the back of my neck. Oh, yeah, so my neck's sure. just been sore. Um, but I prefer like when I was in, when I was back in Florida, I had a table and my daughter doesn't even have a table here. And so, um, and so I've just been writing on the bed and it's kind of aggravating my neck, but hopefully when I get to Italy, I'll be back to writing on a table. So what I do is, uh, I, dude, it's crazy. Like I've had to make sure that I have perfect posture in all situations for the past seven, eight years. So what I do is I'll write on a Macbook, but I'm using a iPad Pro, like one of the new big ones, and I put mm-hmm. it up on one of those gooseneck, like, adapter things that is oh. like at, at eye level and so i can write and use it as a second monitor and it's perfectly at eye level where the keyboard is down like on my uh on the on the key on the table where it should be and so i've you know i've had to like modify you know things that you do for hours and hours on end eventually catch up with you no matter if you have a neck injury or not That's why so True. many. So many people have like herniated and bulged discs because of looking down at the phone or looking down at the computer all the time, right?
1: You know, for the last couple of years, I've been really trying my best to get the Infinite Worlds brand going. And it's mostly through my phone. It's mostly on social media, Instagram, messaging people back and forth to, you know, get art or stories or whatever from them. And it would like the neck soreness I would get from just from like leaning my head down to look at the phone and it'd be like... Constant all day. Right. And I finally had to buy myself like a desktop computer uh, so that I could sit at a desk and at very least, you know, be looking straight ahead. I, I still use my phone a lot. But you know, now at least I can reply to messages and emails just from my computer instead of my phone. No question about it. It taxes on you for sure
0: yeah i i remember when going to like a physical therapist like seven years ago and the guy was like dude it's called technic and we have 15 16 year old kids in here with bold Man. discs because of spending all day all night on a phone just you know and i look at i remember when my daughter was that age she would just lay on a couch And her neck would be at almost 90 degrees, you know, not her body, just her neck. And it would, uh, and she'd just be on that phone all day. And it was like, oh my gosh, it's, uh, we definitely have to get like ocular implants so that we can just see a hollow screen in front of us at all times. So we no longer have to hold the phone. I mean, that is, that's the next next step. Yeah, it's the next integrate. If the that human shit. species survives this <laughs>
1: that far into the Philip K. Dick dystopia, then that's that's what comes next is definitely just like hologramic images uh, everywhere before your eyes. Yeah, yeah, everywhere <laughs> waving your fingers around to send messages, like in Minority Report. Oh my
0: gosh, you you have to think that you know they're investing. You know, Apple's investing in it right now, the metaverse and all that. I mean, you have to think that AR, this augmented reality, is they're planning on everything going that way. So to think it's not going to happen is kind of naive.
1: I'm uh, currently in the midst of setting up a infinite worlds gallery space on spatial which is like a virtual online gallery space. Wow. And uh, speaking with some of the people there and Tyrone Webb, who's an artist who has contributed to Infinite Worlds a lot of times and is kind of in on the ground floor with them, has kind of got me in on board on that. And it's pretty cool because, I mean, really, I, you know, I don't deal with all the NFT stuff at all. Mm-hmm. Like that's not really my, my bag. But it's cool because you could just go there and it's like being in a gallery, like an art gallery. You know even if i mean it's really cool if you have like the vr goggles to check it out so it really feels like you're standing there you know but otherwise you could just go there on your phone or you know your desktop and just click around and it's still cool like you could still see all the different art pieces and everything and like you can click on the art and it'll like hyperlink you to that artist's web store or their website it's it's pretty rad
0: dude the let me tell you i had like the playstation uh, vr um, and I, I, I knew some guys that were developing. I did, a I think, on my own podcast, I interviewed some guys who were some of the first developers for the virtual reality space, and they worked with Oculus and all that, like, over six, seven years ago. It is mind-boggling how immersive it was seven years ago. I can't even imagine going to an Infinite Worlds gallery. I mean, as much as I love the art at Infinite Worlds, I can tell you, I would get so high, and <laughs> go we'll go to an. In- I would spend. I, I know I would just put on some music. What you need to do is you need to give people like a track, of playlist that you program. That's a good and, idea. That's a good right, idea. and then that like is- we could go in there and just spend hours in there. It would just
1: be "Welcome to the Machine" by Pink Floyd on repeat. Oh. So it would just be that that track.
0: I would be. I would be so stoked to do that. That would be so rad.
1: So that's that's on the horizon for us. But I, I mean, like things are going well in some ways, but things are, you know, we've, yesterday I found out that because of the global paper shortage and supply, I'm air quoting here, and supply chain issues that our uh, quotes to print the magazines that are coming up around the bend were like blown up by 40%. Oh, It's a a real hurdle for me, you know, because Infinite Worlds is a really small business. I run it all by myself. I do everything myself along with my designer, Sam. But, you know, otherwise I do everything by myself. So like, trust me, I'm not like paying a bunch of employees and it's not like an inflated business model. It's like a bare bones business model, but it's an ad-free print magazine and it costs to print. And now that cost has gone up, at least temporarily gone up a ton. So I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do next about that.
0: It's crazy because people don't understand that like a, for a business, a successful business to, you know, you usually will make like 15%, maybe 20%. Right. You know what I mean? And so it, a 40% jump in costs just yeah. has to be just like staggering. Well, it,
1: it makes it impossible to continue like- on That's what I mean. Model. Like Yeah, like it's impossible. Yeah. So like I have to figure out a current model. We might go down to publishing biannually. annually like for a little while. Again, we did buy annual at first, so we might go back to that for a little while, just so that my overhead printing cost annually is low like halved. Because I mean that would mean the same amount of printing cost, but of course I'd have less product to sell. So I don't know. We're figuring it out. We will figure it out. Infinite Worlds is going to continue, even if I have to, you know, live in a van and put it all together and take showers at the gym. I don't hey, care. That's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> like I don't get like it's going to keep going I like it's yeah. you know it's my thing but and the other news is, is that I finished the second draft of my novel.
0: Ah, oh, congratulations. That's which awesome. uh, that,
1: that also happened yesterday the same day as this other stuff. I'm feeling pretty confident about it, and we're going to talk about a writer here in just a minute. I want to say this stuff first so that when we talk about that writer, it makes a little bit more sense. This is sort of my segue here. This is my second book that I've written, and it's the first book that I've written and really, really, really taken seriously and really tried to study for it and prepare myself and learn all I could about it and really, really try to get it right work with other people and all that. and I've kind of started to think of writing a novel sort of like this. The first step like writing the novel in the first place is like going to medical school. Mm. It's so much like studying and learning and, you know, imagining and mind work that it's, it, and it's such a, I mean, it really is a challenge to get through it. Then that's the first draft. Then a second draft is like performing surgery. And that's where you're like, for me, at least I was like, rearranging all the different parts and trying to, you know, cutting this stuff out, cutting that. It's like major organ transplant surgery. Right. And then I'm between the second stage and the third stage. And I am imagining the third stage to be like cosmetic surgery, Mm -hmm. you know, where all I'm doing in the third draft is just cleaning it up. Like there won't be any substantial like plot changes or, you know, uh, anything like that going forward. But I just want to make the writing as smooth as possible and make sure that I didn't, you know, accidentally contradict myself here between pages or anything like that because I made changes. But two two years, two years I've been writing this book and I'm just about, I mean, I still have the third draft to do, but I feel like I could get it done in about a month or so because like I said, because I said, there's not a lot of substantial changes necessary and it's in the hands of some early readers again. But uh, so hopefully I'll be able to like pitch it to publishers this summer, which has been the plan for a while now. And it's still, I'm still on track for that. Okay. So two years I spent writing this book. We're going to talk in this episode about Jurassic Park. This episode's about Jurassic Park, both the... Film by Steven Spielberg, which was a mega blockbuster extravaganza, but based on the novel by Michael Crichton. This is how I'm going to segue because I'm going to start by talking about Michael Crichton. Because in reading about him, you had said that you had planned to read this book again for the I read episode. It. You? Yeah, okay, I, ju- I just finished I it. Oh, awesome. Okay, so well, I've read the book, but, though it's been a while, but I read it in my early 20s along with The Lost World and Andromeda
0: Strain. See, no, I hadn't, it, I hadn't read it. That's what's crazy is I had not read uh, Jurassic Park, and so it was all, it was always like kind of on the list of things to read. It was for me. It was bef- the reason I didn't read it was Be- Winston because it was just a little too popcorny and mainstream. Sure, sure. But I read it and fucking loved it and was yeah. like, why did I, why did I not read this thing? You know, what because was I the movie is so
1: popcorn and mainstream but yeah like i said i haven't read the book since my early 20s but i remember it being pretty darn close to the movie for the most part plot wise like i remember thinking that the movie after having read it and then watching the movie again thinking well the movie stuck pretty much to the plot of the book for the most part except for that there was a lot more intellectual quality to the book because there's all these little parts it's there's all these parts where dr ian malcolm is like Oh, spoiler alert! In the book, he gets mortally wounded and spends like the whole rest of the book dying. But he's like all drugged up on opiates or whatever. And but he kind of launches into these tirades about chaos theory and about the dangers of meddling with technology, and they're really cool. Yeah, from what I remember, and that really felt like the real theme of the book when I read it.
0: To me, that was the book. It was not the movie, and, and right. that's that inner. It made me like really think about and contemplate sci-fi and how the reality is, is that so much of sci-fi, whether it's Christopher Nolan's inception or like this book or so many other like Neil Stevenson, so many other books and writers that I love so much of it violates like that rule where you don't want to have inf- information dumps and, but, but great sci-fi you know, is about the information dump and right.
1: Yeah. There is a lot of that, uh, you know, like using a character as a tool or not even sometimes not even a character, but you're right. They drop all of this technical scientific stuff on you in these books.
0: And, and going through it, like whether it's found Asimov's foundation, you know, which I recently finished it, 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 it so much of that is about this, you know, inner monologue.
1: We should do an Asimov episode soon. I think that's a I, I good think idea. I
0: think we should, especially in light of, you know, the foundation that just happened. But anyways, I you know, I really wanted to have this discussion anyways with you about, you know, do you, you know, when you're selecting stories for infinite worlds, are you like, Well, I want to have more of that info dump, more of that inner inner monologue or a dialogue debate about these things that isn't so much action and you know plot driven things because that was really where I was like I really have respect for Crichton and this mm-hmm. uh, this novel as compared to the movie and I love the movie. I thought the movie was an amazing roller coaster ride.
1: Well okay so to answer your question I think there's a big disparity between long form writing like novel writing and short form fiction which is what I've usually published in the magazine.
0: Yeah. And
1: those it, like because the the stuff I usually print is only 2000, 3000, 4000 words long, there's not mm-hmm. a lot of space for info dumps and mm-hmm. pretty much any words that, words that aren't moving the action forward. Although, when I do find a story like that that works in that word limit, I do move it to the top of my list as it were, you ah. know, like I I do keep an eye out for that, but it's a lot harder to do in short writing You know, and those who could do it well, I mean, that's really where you got to start applauding people. And okay, so because he's that kind of writer, Michael Crichton didn't really write a ton of short stories like he spent his Mm. career working on novels and a ton of other things. But how did he start? Let's let me let me get into this, because uh, I I think his story is really interesting. The more I read about Michael Crichton, the more I was like, wow, this is actually really fascinating. So uh, let's start with that. Okay, so Michael Crichton was born in Chicago in 1942. But then he grew up in Long Island. He was so adept at writing that at the age of 14, he had an article that he wrote about a trip to the Sunset Crater in Arizona, published in the New York Times at the age of 14. Wow. So obviously, you know, he was an advanced writer from a very young age. Uh, in 1960, when he was 18, he went to Harvard to study writing. And here's a really interesting anecdote that I think will tie in really well. While he was at Harvard studying writing, he thought one of his professors was grading his papers unfairly because he didn't like him personally or something like that. So he conducted an experiment uh, and he informed other professors ahead of time that he was going to do it so it wouldn't like, you know, go down on his record as like plagiarism. Mm-hmm. And he his experiment was to submit an essay by George Orwell to his professor to see if he would grade it poorly. So uh the essay got a B minus. And Michael Crichton said, well, George Orwell is one of the greatest writers ever. And if his essay can only get a B minus, then, you know, what hope do I have in this? And he decided to switch majors because of this. Wow! And that's really interesting. It's really interesting to me. It says a lot about Michael Crichton where he would think a B minus is like a very poor mark. (laughs) A B minus is not a bad grade. You know, I mean, especially for a young writer, obviously his standards were extremely high. Also, that's also trying to suggest that just because George Orwell wrote the essay that it must be a plus material, uh, you know, as if those things aren't sort of um,
0: – or, or was the freaking teacher biased.
1: Or was the teacher biased. And that's what he was trying to do. He was trying to, he was trying to prove bias. So um, anyway, he switched majors. And he switched at this age, having been a very young, successful writer already in his life, switched to biological anthropology. And graduated, yeah. He then graduated summa cum laude in that subject in 1964. So, just to say, this guy was smart as shit. Michael Crichton was a super, super, super smart guy, and I'm going to illustrate that further in just a second. Then, after graduated, he enrolled in medical school to become Mm. a doctor because why not? I mean, you can make plenty of money being a doctor, and. But he didn't like it. He didn't like doing it. But he said, well, I don't like it. But everybody who goes to medical school doesn't like it. That's just the nature of the beast. So he kept at it. But Mm -hmm. while he was doing that, he started writing books. While he was in medical school, let me just reiterate that. He started writing books because he just, you know, his mind had plenty of spare space, apparently. But he was writing them under a pseudonym because he didn't want later on in his medical profession for his patients to think that he was going to use them as characters in books you know he wanted to keep the two mm. lives totally separate and while he was doing this he got several books published <laughs> in fact before he stopped going to medical school he had published 7 novels what i'm not kidding mostly under pseudonyms but by the 3rd year of medical school he decided that he did he wanted to stop using pseudonyms and started publishing under his own name and his first novel he published under his own name was the andromeda strain which wow. was a bestseller. Which was a bestseller. Yeah. yeah. Okay, and if you guys aren't familiar with the Andromeda Strain, I read that away.
0: a long time ago. Yeah. And it's a really cool book,
1: man. And it's kind uh-huh. of like about trying to prevent the outbreak of an infection of an alien microbe, like an extraterrestrial microbe. And not long after he wrote that, 1969, it was a bestseller. Then he sold the rights for two hundred fifty thousand dollars in 1970, which mm. you know. Is like a million dollars, our money. And it was made into a really good movie by Robert Wise in 1971. And P.S., the effects for that movie were done by Douglas Trumbull, who we've talked about lots of times, one of the great innovators of uh, uh, practical effects. If you guys haven't seen that one, it's a cool movie. It's kind of a slow-paced movie because they followed the... Crichton's books are kind of like that. They're more like think pieces than they are action-y, even though there's plenty of action in the books. There's a lot more thoughtfulness and then compared to the most of the movie adaptations but this movie andromeda strain the andromeda strain is a bit of an exception because it's a pretty slow burn kind of like the book is then after that he uh started getting into um television he was asked by abc to write a script for an episode of something and he was like only if i can direct it and they let him but then had somebody else write the episode so he ended up getting like his in the door, directing that way, and then in 1973, just a couple of years later, he wrote and directed Westworld with Yul Brynner, which is one of the great classics of science fiction cinema. Like if he
0: does so he he directed the movie.
1: Yes, that's correct. You, oh you heard my me correct. Cor- yeah, you heard me God. correctly. So suffice it to say, this guy. Was a genius. Like, he was a really, Holy really, really smart shit. guy. Yeah. You know, just completely changes his, like, he goes from medical school to being a best selling writer to being a hit film director. He didn't really stick around the film directing thing too much, although he was definitely tied to the movie industry for, you know, the rest of his life for the most part. But he basically continued to write. After that, he wrote The Terminal Man and Eaters of the Dead, which later got adapted into a film called The Thirteen Warrior. In 1980, he wrote Congo. In 1987, he wrote Sphere, and all of these are
0: bestsellers. Yeah, Sphere was a pretty big movie too.
1: Yeah, uh, all these Congo was a terrible movie, but the book I understand is pretty cool. And Sphere, I've never read the book either, but that movie I remember being pretty cool. A lot of some good ideas. It kind of reminded me of The Abyss, Mm. which came out like the next year the film did. Mm -hmm. So they had kind of a some similar vibes. Then in 1990, he wrote Jurassic Park. And he had been such a successful writer up to this point in his career that before the book was even published, four film studios were attempting to acquire the rights to the movie.
0: Oh, dude, there had to be the biggest big bidding war. I mean, if you think about, like, as I was reading the book and I was just thinking of, like, the, ma- like, the potential for success. I mean, anybody, if you just pitch this in an elevator with one sentence, they would go, Oh my God, you're right. That is fucking genius. You're going to start a fucking park, an amusement park with dinosaurs. And it all goes awry. <laughs> that, 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 that's it. That, that's the elevator pitch.
1: <laughs> that's so funny. Cause there's this really, really, really funny episode of the Simpsons and principal Skinner gets uh, fired for being the principal. And then later on, he's at the quickie mart and uh, he's talking to Bart and a poo and it, they ask him what he's going to do now. And he says, my plan is to write the great American novel. And, uh, it's about a futuristic theme park where dinosaurs are brought to life using advanced cloning techniques. And then the next like 45 minutes pass where Apu is just berating him for not realizing that he's describing Jurassic park. <laughs> 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 and Skinner going to call it Billy and the clonosaurus. <laughs> <laughs> look up billy and the clone of, if you if you guys aren't simpsons maniacs like i am just yeah. google billy and the clonosaurus on youtube and just watch that clip it's hilarious so anyway this guy they end up selling he ends up selling the rights for a million dollars and then gets paid five hundred thousand dollars to write the script as well so he makes a cool million and a half bucks just off of the movie deal for this, and uh, he uh, ends up working with another screenwriter, uh, Michael Coop. I, I don't, don't exactly know how to say it. K O E P P Koep, Coop, Cope, Cap, possibly. David Cope, is that right? I yes, thinking. it's something like that. Uh, yeah. You heard me. You guys pronounce it how you pronounce it. No disrespect to you, Mister David K. You're obviously. A good decent screenwriter okay so then they ended up selling the rights and then it ended up being steven spielberg who they got to be the director for this movie and spielberg had been on a role this is before steven spielberg had misstepped really at all um what were his movies before this like jaws close encounters e.t e. yeah, yeah. Uh, the color purple. It had just been like smash hit after smash hit. And so they brought him in to do this. And part of the deal with this was he would direct Jurassic Park if he was allowed to direct Schindler's List. I think there's a story that goes around wow. about how it was like a prerequisite for doing this was that he would do it on the terms that he'd be allowed to release Schindler's List.
0: So they would fund his passion project Right. And he would give them the greatest freaking box office that they had ever seen.
1: And that's the truth. It was literally the greatest box office anybody had ever seen. This movie outperformed Star Wars. It outperformed every movie that came before it. Jurassic Park, when it debuted, was the highest grossing film of all time on a budget of $63 million. Ended up all time earning over a billion dollars worldwide. So to call it a hit is a dramatic understatement. It is one of the biggest hits ever. You know, it's since then, you know, there have been, there was Titanic that came up not, not long after. And then Avatar. And there have been a few other, I think the Marvel movies are up there now and a few other ones,
0: but at the yeah, time, but, but you know what, man, it's like, you have to, it, the genius of the entire idea, Winston is if you think about little kids, they are absurd obsessed with dinosaurs right? <laughs> more so than anything else in the world and all of us inside are all little kids right well let
1: me tell you when this movie came out i was a 10 year old did I, you love it or what are you kidding me i okay even before this movie came out i was already a dinosaur guy i used to exactly one of my, one of my favorite things Like I I imagine myself wanting to be a paleontologist when I was a very young child, like ages. And I think that's true of a lot of little boys and girls that are between the ages of like seven and 10, seven and 12. That's my point. Discovering (laughs) this. Yeah. So what's really funny about this is that I don't think when Michael Crichton wrote this book that he had any of that in mind at all. Like Uh. that he never thought, oh, kids are going to love this because – You know, the book is extremely violent. And, you know, it's an R-rated book, 100%. It is not not like a book for children. None of his books are at all. Like, I mean, he's an adult science fiction writer or fiction science writer, somewhere in that. So it's an adult book. But Steven Spielberg took on the project. and He said, you know who would love this shit? (laughs) Ten-year-olds. Dude, but but you know
0: what? I'll give Crichton credit, though, because – you know, two of the most important characters in the book are like the guy's uh, grandchildren. Yeah. yeah. And so there so, are little kids in the book for sure. So we see it through their like awe and, and you know, oh God. It's and then their terror. So, <laughs> and then their terror, yes. Their terror. Yeah. I, you know, as I was reading the book, I was like, I, I just, the genius of the idea of, of a theme park with dinosaurs everybody really? fucking loves dinosaur. I mean, I we are still. I still see under some of my uh news feeds, you know that I follow with science and all, that oh, they discovered this dinosaur and this dinosaur. It, right. it is it happens never all the time. ending. Oh yeah, yeah. and
1: uh, always con- like you know connecting the dots between the different species and everything. And also, you know, this is my, one of those examples of either science fiction writing predicting the future or science fiction writing influencing the future or some combination of the two things which i always think it's a combination there's serious discussion right now about cloning woolly mammoths yeah mastodons uh that's a real thing and although those aren't dinosaurs in fact they are separated by like 65 million years i mean they're they're like ancient humans and mastodons or woolly mammoths i can't remember which one lived at the same time you know humans hunted them so that Historically speaking, that's not that far back. Dinosaurs were at least 65 million years before that, which is you know epochs of time untold to get all H.P. Lovecraft on you guys. So you know, there's a huge difference between the things, but it's a step in that direction, a step, I guess, backwards in time.
0: And see, this is why I think it's such an important and such a radical and cool uh, novel is because, and what he did was because he took something, okay, dinosaurs, right? And we all have at one point in our lives not only enjoyed dinosaurs, we've all been obsessed with dinosaurs. Sure. right? Yes, obsession. Yes. Yes. Then he coupled that with cutting a discussion, uh, an ongoing discussion throughout the novel of cutting edge genetic you know, cloning CRISPR, all of it. And is this ethical? Should we be doing this? And what's going to happen if we allow this to just go unheeded? The
1: ramifications of technology, the ramifications of, you know, in his mind in Crichton's mind of playing God, um, which, you know, he, he basically in the book, Ian Malcolm basically represents Crichton's ideas on this subject. You know, he's basically telling everybody what Michael Crichton thinks yes. about this. Yes. And his views of all of it are not positive at all. No. You know, he, you know, he's not like singing the praises of this technological breakthrough at all. Very similar. I mean, if you've seen the film, that character is very famously played by the ever-lovable Jeff Goldblum. But his character is watered down a whole lot to be kind of like almost comic relief in the yeah. – in the movie. Uh, I don't I don't know if I want to call that character comic relief. He definitely does some finger wagging and, you know, predicts that it's not going to have a happy ending and all that too. But the character in the book is not funny really at all from what I can remember. Again, it's been a long time since I read this, probably like 15 years or so.
0: No, it's not. He doesn't bring the charisma. He doesn't on the page. He doesn't have the charisma and the humor of Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. But you, but like you're saying, you know what's so cool about this episode is that in this story, is that it's really an update. It's a mirror on our one of our earlier episodes on Frankenstein. Is that mm, this yeah. is truly the Frankenstein story? Should I, we be playing God? right
1: you're that's a very keen observation there, uh, and you're absolutely right about that. like this is Jurassic Park or the modern Frankenstein, <laughs> you know right? uh, because it really is dealing with that mysterious power that lies in cutting edge technology, uh, and that's kind of like a theme that runs through pretty much all of his storytelling in fact. Later on in Michael Crichton's life, towards the end of his life, Michael Crichton will go on to die of lymphoma in 2008. So he, he, you know, he was still fair. Not, I wouldn't say he was young, but you know, he was still probably had some writing left in him. But by the end of his life, he had become such. What's the word I want to use? He was a contrarian towards the main point of view. Like he basically mm. spent the later parts of his life openly contradicting not all, but a lot of, uh, scientific consensus, uh, global warming. He thought that there was a big, uh, that was a big scam.
0: Oh, um, I remember that. That's right. He was um, and, almost anti-science.
1: And almost anti-science because publicly he said that he behaved that way because he thought a 100% scientific consensus taken as fact created an automatic bias in the, his own way he was trying to do the right thing but you know he he was never a scientist that studied weather phenomenon you know what i mean yeah. he, he he never yeah. did that in his life you know so his his ideas although he was a very intelligent person who could very clearly read scientific studies and knew plenty about science you know had gone to medical school a very learned individual but he wasn't an expert on that, and he wrote a novel about it called *State of Fear*, which is kind I of like. I remember that. It was pretty controversial, and you know, as time has passed, the studies have further bolstered the argument for climate change. Like it is exactly. Happening.
0: I do remember that absolutely. And this absolutely.
1: Happened, like this this was almost twenty years ago that he was he wrote that book. I think I it was that. yeah, almost twenty years ago. It was a fiction book. It's a book of fiction, kind of like saying that you better not clone dinosaurs or it will turn out like Jurassic park, you know, And, and, and there's definitely some fiction to that, but buried in those fictions are warnings. And the warning that I do take from it, that I actually take seriously is that scientific consensus is important, you know, and it's really important to listen to experts. I think that, but the idea that scientific consensus might be upended is a very real reality and it happens all the time. So Even though I think it's best to listen to experts, and I I mean this as a very, I'm a skeptical person, you know, I I am skeptical of almost everything. I still believe that it's important to listen to experts, but don't be surprised if, or try not to be too surprised if the experts do get it wrong from time to time.
0: Well, I think think it's a part of, I, I think it's important to understand that, you know, a scientist, a real scientist will always come out and say, but... You know, and leave that door open because right. it isn't. It is, you know, scientific thought is should be infused with the humility to say we are constantly learning, and until right. we arrive at a level of certainty, like with the law of thermodynamics, right. which we say this is a until something is a law of the universe, it's open to debate. But right. then at the same, the other time, it's like, wait a minute we've got general consensus with among 99% of climate scientists that we're fucked you know we've got a problem here and until you know it's i was i was having this discussion with someone the other day and 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 they were talking about how well you know it's it's great that you know this certain podcaster who's really big he had a scientist on that was talking about you know was pro climate change and was saying listen we have a problem and then the next day he had another scientist that said no but there is some room for you know debate here and maybe it's not real or maybe it's not as bad as people say and my retort to that was but the problem is is you need to have on a thousand scientists saying we have a problem and one. That one exactly you're absolutely in right. And one saying we don't have a problem. Exactly. Because, or one in one against 10,000 because to don't, represent don't, that, yeah, it, that that it's, it's a up,
1: 50-50 discussion. It's you're not. It's, exactly. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you no know, people people also, you know, they they point back and say, "Oh, well, Galileo had to recant his whole theory of uh, heliocentrism and he was right and everybody else was wrong." Okay, that's true. But that's happened a few times in the history of humanity, you know, a handful mm-hmm. of times. And also, in Galileo's day, there weren't a bunch of scientists using advanced scientific equipment. You know, he was one of the few. So they, the, the previous generations weren't basing their understanding on anything but fantasy. You know, and he was one of the first people to actually apply science to yeah, his and ideas. there was
0: also insane political pressure to say if sure. you differ from the church's you know stated position, we're going to boil you in oil, right? You know? right. So, and you know, yeah. I, climate
1: change deniers say, "Oh, there's so much pressure to get with the scientific consensus point of view." Well, I, I don't think it's nobody's going to boil you in oil. I know a lot of these people like to be professional victims. But uh, you know, nobody's going to boil in oil or excommunicate you from a church or something like that, or you know, have you drawn and quartered. But the other side of that coin, so you know, obviously stop crying because people don't agree with you. But the other thing is that the problem that we're facing here is not a just an idealistic problem, like oh, wh- what is true about reality. This is like an existential problem. Like if we don't solve climate change, we will stop existing. Yeah. You know, and so you know, dragging your feet on this subject. Isn't helping anybody. Doing all your all you can to feel right right now is really it's harmful. It's 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 counterproductive. And I look at it this way: if climate change is real, it's a problem that should be all of our resources should be dedicated to solving.
0: All of our attention, all of our resources, all of everything. Okay, everything. If it's,
1: if it's not real, and we dedicate all of those resources towards this problem in error, the end result will be. That we will still have a cleaner environment, yeah, and nothing will be lost. So I really don't see the argument from the anti-climate change crowd. I don't. I don't really see their point. You know, because uh, cleaning up the way we live and trying to treat the Earth better than we do now, there's no downside to it. You know what I mean? Especially I think, I think the if, question if, is
0: just a question of economics and are is it going to yeah. negatively impact our GDP either from a national or world perspective?
1: Or, you know, market share prices.
0: I personally err on the side that no, it will usher in a new age of, you know, GDP growth that as I like the internet did, but the the powers that be uh, are making money off the status quo but you know i'm a conspiracy theorist in that respect so right Um,
1: and i I do believe i think that's the way it will go you know just in in solving this problem new technologies and new avenues for technology and uh engineering and that uh, you know job growth will appear you know somebody has to pioneer those industries So, you know, we've stopped talking about Jurassic Park. (laughs) But, but, you know what,
0: though? Let me tell you that the reason I enjoy this is because it reiterates what we were talking about when we started the episode, is that this is what it was so cool about the novel, is that, compared to the movie, is that the novel, like, got into depth about these questions of... You know, is this ethical? How should we be dealing with this? And I that's why I encourage people to go back. You know, I was one of those haters who was like, I don't want to read a popcorn book. I didn't I found that that his melding of the elements of popcorn versus, you know, actual really good discourse reminded me of the Matrix, where it was like, Yeah, this Hmm. is fucking cool. You got Kung Fu which I love. I love Wu-Tang Clan. Yeah. I love Kung Fu. But I also love that debate where you're like, you walk out of it, the book, or you close the book, or you leave the movie theater going, fuck. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yep. So anyways, yep. 100%. Yeah. yeah, it was really cool, man.
1: Even though in the film adaptation, they sort of play down the scientific elements. In fact, in the movie adaptation, which don't get me wrong, fantastic movie, obviously most of the scientific explanation is condensed into a cartoon short film that will be shown to like tour groups starring a little like animated character with a funny voice that explains the whole scientific process mm-hmm. in like four minutes mm-hmm. and that's pretty much the whole sciencey part of jurassic park you kind of after that take it at face value that okay the science is there. yeah that's yeah, it. yeah 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 and then you and you know The the whole chaos theory is condensed into the scene where Jeff Goldblum is dropping water droplets on Laura Dern's hand.
0: So what did you You what did you think? Obviously, it sounded like from a writing perspective, he was so motivated by the chaos theory. Like, what, (laughs) what did you take away from that? Like when you were like, okay, chaos theory. How did that you know? Why was he so motivated by that? I still – like I understood the ethical considerations.
1: When I look back at all of this, I personally think that that he is a very intellectual – or was a very intellectual person. Mm -hmm. And he seemed to get on like intellectual railroads. Like he'd get on a line and stay on that line for a while until he explored it intellectually and then switched to something else. And I think that's kind of what Jurassic Park ended up being. Was like his exploration of that concept to you know to make it make as much sense to himself as he could. Gotcha. He wanted to have a mastery of understanding of chaos theory himself, mm-hmm. and this novel is basically his way of achieving that, which I you know I think it makes sense to us. And you know, chaos theory um, is not really the easiest thing to understand, especially for those of us that aren't six foot nine super geniuses <laughs> like Michael Crichton.
0: Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't think he connected the dots all that well. I mean, as, as, I, as I read the book, I was like, I, he, it, feels, it felt like he was hinting at this and the importance of it, but I never felt like he actually, like I said, I understood the ethical considerations where he was going with chaos theory, aside from the law of unintended consequences, which if we unleash this, we have no idea where it's going to go where it's going to
1: go you know. right and you know and i okay i haven't read the book in a while so i'd have to go back and read at least ian malcolm's parts mm-hmm. in that book where he you know rambles about this and a lot, a lot of it is rambling yeah too. it is
0: and those for scenes, sure
1: sometimes it's like that with an exploration of ideas. yes having just finished a novel myself that toys with a few different concepts i could understand never connecting the dots yeah. because so, sometimes in the exploration of an idea the dots never end up being connected nor should
0: they sometimes you leave yeah, exactly. it up to the reader and then the reader connects them yeah. and then the re- it it makes the reader or or even if i'm looking at a painting if i can fill in or 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 a, or a piece of music if i could start filling in the dots myself it becomes a part of me right right and that's what that's what makes fiction writing art yeah. You know? Yes.
1: Because you're you write it and try to express yourself and then the audience reads it and tries to understand it through their own, you know, uh perspective. Yes. And their their perspective becomes a part of their experience. it's trying to meld two perspectives. My perspective, if I'm the writer, with the reader's perspective, or Michael Crichton's perspective with his readers. But it might surprise you, but he has quite a few more readers than I do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's one of the one of the great. he sold over two hundred million copies over the course of his career, oh which is a huge huge number. God, especially for somebody who's writing kind of dense stuff. Sometimes not dense as in difficult to read, but kind of difficult to conceptualize. Sometimes,
0: dude, I came away from this book reading this book, and I was like, you know, as I contemplated, hi, contemplated his space. Like as a writer, I was like he kind of seems like the Stephen King of pop mm-hmm. sci-fi. At least you know he's not at that cerebral Neil Stevenson or William Gibson level, but he's definitely a sci-fi writer, and he's at that. But he's poppy in that respect.
1: Yeah, you should understand that. Like during his like the height of his writing career, he was at least as big as Stephen King. Yeah. You know what I mean? He was. Up there with stephen king he's just he, he kind of like fell off a little bit where stephen king apparently does not have apparently that'll never happen to him uh because he's already like almost 80 and his every book he's ever written has been a bestseller still yeah and he's written like 75 of them or some ridiculous number like that how, how you write 75 books in 80 <laughs> years blows my mind
0: i know uh, he's amazing. like how, how do
1: you do that come on man
0: it's amazing um, anyway
1: Let's talk a little bit more about the movie, because I, I know a lot of our listeners are tuning into this episode because they're mostly familiar with the movie. Like I said, I was 10 when this movie came out. And at the time, it was an achievement, an achievement in, well, for one, in box office and that, like what a movie could do at the box office and the success that a movie could have. But besides that, it was a real achievement in practical and special effects. Oof. And, you know, if you look at it now, if you're a Gen Y or a Gen Z, -er, you might go back and watch Jurassic Park and the CGI scenes are, you know, they're not going to hold up the way, you know, some future CGI. But I watched the movie again recently and they're not bad. You know, um, the CGI still, obviously, there's still that uncanny valley there Mm -hmm. when you look at it. But CGI scenes and CGI technology in 1993 aside, the movie's practical effects were some of the greatest ever up to that point, and you know who we can thank for that? Stan Winston, of course. Wow, who we've talked about on this show so many times in the past. One of the greatest geniuses ever to do to deal with. Pre- now we got to talk about Doug Trumbull and Stan Winston in the same episode, which you know makes me happy. Uh,
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> some incredible animatronics, which really helped to you know give this movie a real visceral feel to it you know the cgi stuff even though it was pretty impressive for 1993 standards it's still impossible for cgi in most cases to give you a visceral feel and that's why i'm a practical effects person because this movie definitely gives you that you know the small dinosaurs the raptors i mean it's intensely scary especially when you're a little kid because you know you could tell looking at them that they're at least made of real material you know what i mean that they're really there and present and not you know computer generated and this movie also succeeded based on another obvious uh player in the industry the score the epic epic score by john williams you know who did every movie you can imagine ever yeah yeah ever (laughs) Uh, but you know most most famously probably the star wars uh, themes but his music for this movie was incredible it's sweeping and fantastic just automatically familiar and that really helped carry this movie as well i think and you know great casting we already talked about jeff goldblum sam neal is a terrific lead in this one and he didn't get a whole ton of leads over the course of his career despite being the leading man in what was once the greatest box office success of all time he's really great in uh event horizon
0: oh yeah <laughs> which- Dude, I'm going to tell you, man, I remember sitting sitting in the movie theater and watching when the first time they saw those small, like, raptors or whatever they were, like, run across the, the like, savannas. Mm. It was, like, holy shit. And mm. from what I understand, it was, like, the first CGI of, like, animals, like, moving animals. They had done some things with Terminator on the, like, liquid, like, uh, metal, but... This was like a massive step for CGI. Well, the year before that, they did an animal of sorts
1: in Alien 3. Mm. But – I mean the xenomorph, if you consider that an animal. But I will say that the CGI'd alien scenes in Alien 3 are horrible. Yeah. And should be – if you haven't – I'm sorry to remind you of something that you definitely should have forgotten.
0: Yeah, I did forget. Uh, that.
1: Although, 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 although those movie, that movie's whole, I think, is underrated. The CGI parts are not underrated. They're bad. Or, yeah, they're bad. They're really bad. So, I mean, uh, I, I don't guess you count the xenomorph as an animal. So, your bit of trivia there is still correct, I believe.
0: Yeah, it was it was really cool. I think it was groundbreaking. Uh, Winston, I gotta tell you, the one thing that blew me away as I started researching this was. The amount of money that this franchise has generated aside, <laughs> as far as being a cultural, yeah. like this thing is a megalith. I mean, what did I think I saw one of the new Jurassic Worlds with Chris Pine brought in like $1.6 billion? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, they hit that billion dollar mark like every time now. I tried to watch every Jurassic. time. That's crazy. Yeah, every time Easy. now. I tried to watch Jurassic World recently, kind of prepare for this episode. I got about halfway through it and was like, this it's just too corny for me, man. Like trained Velociraptors, get out of here. I'm not a big Chris Pratt fan either, so I was kind of like I yeah, kind Chris of got Pratt, of
0: Yeah. I dude, I, I could not believe it was almost like when you start thinking about there have been like cartoons, there have been Um, Mm -hmm. The amount of franchise spinoffs that there have been and the amount of money, it's got to be in the $10, $15 billion range as far as merchandise and television. And I I was blown away. Just on the films, just on the five films that have been released so far, and those are
1: Jurassic Park, The Lost World, Jurassic Park, Jurassic Park 3, Jurassic World, and Jurassic World: Fallen Kingdom – the five films of the franchise have made five billion dollars.
0: <laughs> That's <laughs> insane. <laughs>
1: that comes out to about a billion dollars pop. So, and not one of them has been anything less than a gigantic, The worst movie in the franchise is easily Jurassic Park 3. Well, I haven't seen the newest one, I haven't seen Fallen Kingdom, but even Jurassic World, which I was pretty bored with, was still better than Jurassic Park 3. That movie had $180 or a $93 million budget and made 368 million dollars worldwide so almost 300 million dollars worldwide oh my God. uh and that was the worst performing one only made 300 million bucks
0: falling kingdom uh, did 1.3 billion dollars
1: yep worldwide
0: that's what we talk about when we talk about popcorn movies movies that you
1: know are going to appeal to the widest possible audience and damn what better way to do that than dinosaurs Dude, you know everybody. Everybody's fascinated with dinosaurs, you know, uh, except for like evangelical Christians who think that God placed <laughs> their bones on <laughs> Earth as a test.
0: Dude, Jurassic World. Um, is this correct? With freaking uh, that this thing with Chris Pratt did one point almost one point seven billion. Yeah,
1: it's the sixth highest grossing film of all time worldwide. Oh my. god. Gosh. And all of these movies, like the only reason these aren't in first place is one because of Avatar, but two because of like the Marvel movies. Yeah. Which are I mean, but if it wasn't for those movies, these would be all the top grossing movies in the world. But this also goes to show you, man, this is why we do this podcast because bam, literally all science fiction movies. Wow. Avatar, science fiction movie, all of those Marvel movies. Science uh, fiction. At least that yeah. At least have very heavy science fiction elements, elements to them. I yeah. mean, Dr. Doctor Strange, Doctor
0: Strange is a science fiction movie. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah right.
1: multiverse. Heavy science fiction elements. Yeah. Uh, so that's what people want, man. And I get it because we're like racing towards the future these days. Like, you know. <laughs> and which is, you know, as Michael Crichton would probably tell us. Not necessarily a great thing. No, I. Tell uh,
0: you, <laughs> I tell you what. When I was uh, when I was watching last, what was it? The night before, I was watching the Oscars, and when Will Smith walked on stage and smacked, Chris, oh my god! I was like, we are living in a simulation. This is not real. And then he just sat down and chilled out. And then he got <laughs> a Best Actor award like twenty minutes later.
1: And got up there and like, look. I knew oh. that we would not un, be unable to record this. Cause this happened <laughs> today is Today is Tuesday. This happened two oh, days ago on su- Sunday. And so right now it's still like the, the meme of the day, but I, I don't even know what to say about that. Before. I don't either. I don't either. <laughs> I, I always watch the Oscars cause I love filmmaking as an art. Yeah. And I didn't get to watch it this time, but I did kind of like read the live tweets. So I saw the tweet. And I, I, I was laying in bed with my wife and I was like, hey, babe, do you know what just happened? And she's like, <laughs> that's not real. That, there's no way that's real. And I was like, no, dude, it really happened. She's like, it must have been staged. And I was like, oh. I don't know, but it really happened. And she was like immediately on her phone. And then like five minutes later, she's like, oh, no, it's real. Here's a video. Oh, <laughs> and I was
0: my like- gosh. It, it, uh, every, you know what? Every time we record, we always go, dude. Could it, what's going to happen next in the simulation what no can kidding. possibly happen next yeah that was like holy shit man it is going off off the rails <laughs> well dude this was awesome man I'm so glad we got to dig into this I'm so glad you like spurred me to read this because the I, I again I was blown away
1: you know I feel like a lot of the big classics of science fiction, and that includes stuff like Jurassic Park, even the, the popcorn stuff, after they've been on the shelf for a while, people kind of like get this impression that I'm familiar with that because they made a, an adaptation, or I've heard people talk about it, or you know, there's a TV show based on it or whatever. And I think it really does people a lot of good to go back and actually read some of those. I could probably use a reread myself, but... I always find when you go back and read something, you all pretty much always are like, oh, I get why this was popular. Uh, I get why this has such staying power in popular culture. No doubt. But this was definitely a good one, man. I had had fun with this one. Definitely one of our more mainstream episodes. But I think we did a pretty good job of like exposing the underbelly of this one a little bit. Not Not the dark underbelly, but, you know, showing you the clockwork gears and everything on the inside of the story, I think.
0: Oh, I, I love it. I, and I, and I love like how we go back and, and it like causes me to go back and like dig into things that I dismiss. Uh, I recently just watched the fly at Cronenberg and I just, mm, you know man. what I mean? Yeah. Mm. And I was like, the well, old I, old I, right? old times, yeah, you sleep <laughs> on these things.
1: Yeah. It, it, Jeff Goldblum again. <laughs> just to bring him back. In the we got to do a Cronenberg
0: yeah, episode. I mean.
1: Oh, are you kidding me? That would be outstanding. Let's
0: do that next. Let's do that in a few days. I would love oh, to do that. Oh, man. Right.
1: You know who would be excited about this is my wife. She's, she's a huge Cronenberg fan.
0: Let's get a list together of the top like five Cronenbergs and then we'll each watch them and then we'll talk about them. I would love to do that. Okay. I've, I've, we've been on a kick lately because she kind of like, She just turned 30. So
1: she's just kind of in the past couple of years discovered the greatness of Cronenberg Cronenberg. So we've watched a lot of his movies lately. So I've already kind of caught up on a lot of these, but I will absolutely put, she'd be happy to do it too. My movie time is basically shared with my wife. Like I, during the day I work on magazine stuff and when we, she gets home from work, we cook dinner and then sometimes we're like, let's put a movie on and the way we decide together. Uh, but Luckily for me, she's a big Cronenberg fan, so this will be a real easy sell. Let's sale. do it.
0: Let's do it. Let's do it in just a few days. I will tell you my favorite Cronenberg movie is uh, is Scanners. I don't know if That's you've seen it. That's
1: an excellent choice. Scanners, <laughs> like, okay, Scanners, The Fly. We went back and recently watched like some of his 70s movies lately, and there's some real gold in those hills, man. There's some really, really cool, weird scared. I, genuinely we, scary which, stuff too. Okay,
0: let's decide right now. Let's do Scanners, The Fly, okay. and you get to pick the others because I'm not a huge Cronenberg freaking uh, aficionado. I don't know Okay, we're going to stick
1: to his sci-fi movies because he also made like dramas too. Like, no, like let's do more. sci-fi
0: for sure. Okay, you
1: should definitely watch Existence if okay. you haven't watched that one. All right. Definitely put Existence on your list. You said Scanners, you said The Fly. Mm-hmm. From the 70s, put on The Brood. And I know that's going to be kind of an odd choice for some people, but I have recently watched this one and gotten such an appreciation for it. Really? The Brood. Yeah, and Videodrome. Okay. All right. Uh, So those will be the five we talk about, but we could talk about them all because I I, I think I still have to watch Crash, which I haven't seen, but I've pretty much seen all of his other movies. So I'm looking forward to this episode.
0: Oh, that'll be so – so Scanners? Cronenberg. Yeah, uh, Scanners. Mm -hmm. The Brood. Videodrome. The
1: Fly and Existence. I'm stoked. Let's do it. All, all of them are awesome. I've seen them all, you know, in the past like three or four years, and they're, they're all awesome. So rewatching them will be a, like a treat. Okay, dude. That was a great episode. Looking forward to. Oh, one more thing. One more thing. After I get done doing what I'm doing with this, I'm getting on the f- uh, phone call with Andrew, our producer, and uh, some other sponsors, and we're putting together a business plan for the infinite horrors podcast, which is coming up around the corner too. Awesome. neither of us are going to, neither of us are going to appear on it, but at least not as the you know full-time hosts, but we probably will appear on it as guests. Perfect. So that'll be really fun coming forward. So we're gonna have an infinite world and an infinite horrors podcast coming up pretty soon.
0: Awesome.
1: So both things will be happening and then, you know, we'll do some definitely some uh, cross promotion stuff too. So just uh, letting you guys know anything that's that coming down the pipeline. and
0: I'm, I'm here. Anything I can awesome. do to help? Awesome! All right, man, Sweetest. that was awesome, bro. Let's. Hey, you know what? Let's try and record in the next like three, four days uh, while I'm. Okay, yeah, that's fine with me because I'm already kind of
1: caught up on those movies. So okay. you
0: just pour them into
1: your brain, and then we'll uh, we'll record this week. Okay, awesome. Thanks, brother, Nate. All right, man, guys. If you're enjoying the Infinite Worlds podcast, you could definitely check out more Infinite Worlds related stuff by visiting our website, InfiniteWorldsMagazine.com. There, you can subscribe to Infinite Worlds Magazine. It's a full-color, ad-free science fiction magazine featuring stories, comics, and illustrations from creators all over the world. You can also sign up to our mailing list. You can follow us on Instagram at Infinite Worlds Magazine or on Twitter at fi mag. Also, you can find Nick the Tooth on Instagram at Nick the Tooth and follow his wild escapades. Theme song was written by Christopher Whitaker. And our podcast is produced by Andrew Alonzo. Ah, uh, ah,
0: uh, ah. Uh. You didn't say the magic word. Uh, Please! Uh, uh. God uh, damn it! Uh, uh. I hate this heck of uh,
1: crap. Uh, uh.